Thank you, Hilla. And good morning again, everyone. So as we think about Ecclesiastes. Now, I think you might have heard of the expression, the great Australian dream. Who's heard of this idea? Yes? Okay. Did you know what this idea means? Um, it's a very widespread belief among Australians about the desirability of owning our own home and the security that this brings. Um, it's been a feature of Australian culture, particularly since uh, World War II. Uh, in the major cities, and a description of this idea uh, I found online says, typically the Australian dream focused on ownership of a detached house, often single storey, on a quarter acre suburban block, surrounded by a garden, which featured in the back a hill's hoist and a barbecue. <laughs> Sounds familiar? Yeah. Um, I spent my childhood in what they call the red brick suburbia of Sydney, uh, where many suburbs, almost every single house, looked like this. They were all the same. As if, if you fly in over on this plane, they all look the same. Um, now, the great Australian dream of home ownership also has a lifestyle that goes along with it. And again, it's familiar, and here's a description of it that I found. Those who achieved the dream also followed a set of urban rituals, including taking an annual summer holiday by the ocean, living in a nuclear family, as well as weekly lawn mowing, preferably with a Victor lawn mower, and washing the family car for either a Ford or a Holden on Saturday mornings. From the 1970s, the Australian dream expanded to cover possession of a swimming pool in the backyard, a second family car, and for the affluent, either ownership of a beach house or taking an annual overseas holiday. Again, very familiar. That should be recognisable to any of us who live in the suburbs of Australia. And there have been, of course, lots of TV shows and movies that depict people living the Australian dream. Um, of course, in the last decade or so, the great Australian dream, unfortunately, has become something of an unattainable fantasy for many people, maybe most of those who do not already have it. Isn't that true? Um, now, so the great Australian dream, I think, is a very relatable example for us uh, of our topic from the Bible reading today. So this is the second sermon in our series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we saw last week, this is a book in the Old Testament, which is about wisdom. How do we understand the world? And I've called the series Life Within Limits because the teacher in Ecclesiastes encourages us to be aware of and to accept the limitations that we have as mortal people in order to live well under the sun as he says. And this is good for us, I think, as we think about how we can make our faith in Jesus speak to the real side of our lives and the challenges uh, that the difficult sides of life brings to us. Um, last week we looked at the introduction to the book where the, where the teacher argues that life is essentially an enigma to us. It's perplexing and it's hard to grasp. And we looked at the key word in um, Ecclesiastes Hevel. It's a Hebrew word. It's translated meaningless often in the Bible, but the word really is more like smoke or mist or vapour, something that is ephemeral and can't be held on to. So he's saying life is like a cloud of smoke. It might look substantial to us, but you can't grasp it and you can't hold on to it. And meaning and purpose in life is evasive. Now, in the passage we're looking at today, the teacher begins to reflect on his own experience of life. Um, and different things that he has tested to see whether they can provide meaning. And so in this passage, he tests the idea of the good life, as he would have, under, would have understood it in his time, or sort of like the great Israelite dream. 
if you like, our, their version of the Australian dream. And he sets himself almost a scientific question to explore whether achieving material success and prosperity can bring meaning and happiness to life. Now, you may remember another great, recognise a great Australian dream in this phrase, wouldn't it be nice? Do you know, you ever heard that before, wouldn't it be nice? You've got the song in your head now. So the lotto asks us to imagine how wonderful it would be to have everything that we have ever wished for. And so the teacher in Ecclesiastes asks the same question, but with a more sceptical angle. He asks, would it be nice? Would it be nice to have everything that you ever wanted? And so he sets out to try different areas of enjoyment in life and measure them against his goal of finding meaning. Before we look at this, it's worth remembering that Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. And so that means it's about understanding life and what it means to live well as it is. It's not about um, morality as such or what we should do. The question that he's asking in this book is not whether it's bad to pursue wealth and success, but whether those things actually bring us the satisfaction that they promise or that we hope they will. And so he tries all lots of things. So the first thing he tries is partying. Will this bring success? I tried cheering myself with wine. So he tries pleasure, enjoying laughter and wine and foolishness. All the things that we think about when we think about cutting loose, having a good time. As we would expect, though, this is fairly easy. He finds that to be Hevel. This is meaningless. This is a vapour. You have a great party, but you wake up in the morning with a hangover and not much else to show for it. Laughter and pleasure, he says, it doesn't accomplish anything. It's fun, but it's not much else apart from that. So he tries other things. So he grows up a bit, gets serious he, about pursuing more substantial goals and success. He says, I undertook great projects. So he sets himself to work hard and to play hard, you know, and he builds a big house, he says, and he plants a vineyard, puts in gardens and parks and trees and a fancy irrigation scheme. And he builds up a great staff of servants to work for him and he buys lots of animals to make a big herd. He makes lots of money more than anyone else. He hires artists and singers to provide beautiful entertainment for him and he acquires a harem. Um, in the Bible, there's a note next to the word harem that says the meaning of this Hebrew phrase is uncertain, but I think we can guess what it means. Okay. <laughs> um, so, essentially, he blows straight past the great Australian dream. It's relatively modest, isn't it? And he, go, be, he becomes what we would recognise as a successful business tycoon, kind of Elon Musk, perhaps Jeff Bezos, lots of employees, a big luxurious house with expensive cars and wonderful grounds, the billionaire lifestyle. It was a billionaire named Martin Forbes who came up with the famous expression, he who dies with the most toys wins. Have you heard this? The, he who dies with the most toys wins. And so the teacher explores this philosophy and practice of the billionaire. So in verse 10 he says, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labour and that was the reward for all my toil. So he wholeheartedly enjoyed himself. So what does this test show, though? Did it give meaning to life? Well, he goes on to say, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. All this, everything he gained and achieved, was still hevel. It was nothing but smoke under his hands. 
Now, it may be hard for us to go with him to that conclusion because we're not there, most of us. I don't know if there's any billionaires in the congregation. If there are, please speak to me after the service. Um, because it would be nice, wouldn't it, to have the security and convenience and comfort that come from being wealthy. But the question he's asking is not would it be nice, but would it bring meaning to his life? And that point of view, it doesn't actually seem to stack up for two reasons. Firstly, because the teacher reminds us that our prosperity is always already confronted by the reality of our death, which is coming. And secondly, because in the pursuit of this dream, we often lose the proper enjoyment of the life that we do have. And the problem is that the effort we put into it doesn't pay off. And that's why he talks a lot about toil, and this is an important concept for him, and he mentions it many times, the idea of toil. Toil means hard, tedious work. And so the reality, he says, is you work your guts out your whole life, you build up all these things, and then in the end, you have to pass them over to someone else. You lose the ability to enjoy your success when you die, and often even before you die. And he says in verse 19, who knows whether that person, the one who takes over from you, will be wise or foolish. Your successor, your child, or your, the one who inherits from you, might destroy your business. They might lose the house with gambling debts. You're working hard for things that in the end will fade away like smoke. And we all know that achieving a success and prosperity often comes at a huge cost to us of stress and worry and overwork and compromise and in damaged relationships because of what it takes to succeed. Who, has anyone watched Succession, the TV show, recently? Please do if you want to understand what he's talking about. Um, so in verse 22 to 23, he says, What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. So how many of us have struggled to sleep at night worrying about work and worrying about money? How many people die of a heart attack at a relatively young age because of all the stress from their work? That is reality. Even in the achieving of great things, he says, we often lose ourselves. That is mist, it's smoke, it's hevel, it's a chasing after the wind. And again, for the teacher, this is not a moral question. He's not saying it's bad to work hard or to attempt to become successful or wealthy. He's just saying we live in a world where we will eventually lose everything that we have achieved and it won't last. If you die with the most toys, guess what? You're still dead. <laughs> Do you envy the ancient pharaohs of Egypt who were buried with all their treasures? No. That is meaningless. And the point for Ecclesiastes is that the limits of our lives confront us with the limitations of pursuing our dream, even if we achieve everything that we ever wanted. Everything. It is still a chasing after the wind. In the long term, it doesn't amount to anything very much. So what do we do with this then? Basically, he's undermining in this passage the entire basis of Australian society, isn't he? What would be left if we took that away? Um, and the question for us is, how do we have a healthy attitude to success in material things then? As I said last week, as Christians, I think we should listen both to the teacher and to Jesus because that gives two perspectives, I think, that balance and fulfil each other. So the first is what the teacher of Ecclesiastes says himself about enjoyment in life. And then I think we can see a more radical perspective that Jesus gave to his followers. 
So firstly, I think what we find in Ecclesiastes is actually an encouragement um, to have a more limited, down-to-earth and simpler attitude to our possessions. Um, if we recognise that they don't actually bring ultimate meaning, then he would say, I think, that we are set free then to simply enjoy good things for what they are as gifts from God and not to grasp them so tightly. So right after reading today, there are a few more verses where he says this, the famous phrase from verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil, or eat, drink and be merry as we we might know it. He says, this too I see is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment. So Christians you know, often have a reputation for being negative about enjoying life. And Ecclesiastes reminds us that actually all the good things in the world are actually gifts from God. They're things for us to enjoy. Um, and within the limits of our lives, what better thing is there for us to enjoy with thankfulness the good things of the world? There's something very significant, I think, about the fact that God gave us the ability to enjoy the, ta- enjoy the taste of food. There's something worth thinking about. You know, why would he do that? I think we talked at, when we talked about Song of Songs, remembering that we were put into a world that has limitless pleasures for us to enjoy. Um, but the difference between this, I think, and the idea of chasing after the wind is that we shouldn't make those things, pursuing those things, the object of our lives and then lose them in the end. Um, the teacher's words, I think, are a call for us to be present to our lives now, to be thankful for what we do have and not strive desperately after what we don't have. Um, If we think about our own experience, it is certainly very hard of people from my generation and younger to realise that we may not ever achieve the great Australian dream or that it might be too costly to do it so that even if we get that house, we won't enjoy it. Um, A lot of people get very angry about this, as you might know. But the teacher would say we can still enjoy the good things that we have each day even if chasing after the wind is beyond us. So I think Ecclesiastes is actually an encouragement to enjoy life as much as we can, when we can. Um, But this sort of peaceful resignation, I think, is not the end of the question for for Christians. Um, Jesus, of course, offered a a perspective on life that looks beyond the limits of our ordinary life uh, towards eternity and the meaning that comes from God's further plans for us. You might remember, in, if you look at Mark chapter 10, verse 17 to 31, Jesus had an in- interesting conversation with a rich young man. Um, so, sorry, have you got that slide there, Trevor? Um, it's all right. Um, which we can read about here in Mark 10. As Jesus says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. 
it's okay to enjoy the good things of life, but even those things, Jesus says, can become a hindrance or distraction in pursuing the treasures of heaven, which is the presence of God in our lives now and forever. Um, And I think for Christians, we need to remember in the long run, we are not pursuing the great Australian dream. That is a chasing after the wind. The dream and the goal we want to pursue is the knowledge of God, a relationship that brings the fullness of life, something that we won't lose when we die and we don't have to give away, an eternal treasure. And often this means that Christians are, in this life, called to radically abandon wealth and success and to follow a different path. A prominent example of this from church history is a man named Francis of Assisi, who you might be familiar with. Uh, He lived in Italy in the 13th century, and he grew up as a young man in a very wealthy family, and he had everything that he needed. He was like the rich young ruler in um, Mark's Gospel. And one day he did feel called, though, to give away his wealth. Um, And he embraced poverty in order to seek God and to be in solidarity with poor and dispossessed people. And I think this is the sort of life, it is in some ways beyond the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. It's more than that, because it says that even in this limited life, I'm not going to pursue legitimate joy and pleasure that's available to me, to eat and drink and seek satisfaction in my work. There's more to life than that. And true joy is found, he says, in pursuing God with all our heart and all our mind and all our soul and all our strength, not in pursuing wealth and pursuing success. Now, and I think that's a hard word for us. I know it is. Um, Jesus' disciples were right when they said to Jesus, who then can be saved if this is what we must do, when they heard what he said to the rich young man? Um, Because all of us struggle with this, this letting go. Um, And I think the passage from Ecclesiastes then helps us with that because it calls us to evaluate our attitude to the dreams we have for our life, our possessions, our success, and what they're for. Um, God has certainly given us us all these wonderful things in our life to enjoy, and we should enjoy them thankfully. But the question is, what are we actually pursuing? Are we pursuing God himself with that same energy that we pursue the enjoyment of his gifts? Is there a greater dream in your life than the great Australian dream? And how far are we on this journey of letting go, of chasing after the wind and grasping after the kingdom of God instead? Let's ask ourselves that today and as we go out into the week. Let me pray as we reflect on that this morning. We thank you, Lord, today for all the wonderful gifts of this world that you've given us, the things to enjoy, the things that make life joyful, happy, the pleasures of our lives. We pray, Lord, that though in the midst of this we would not pursue those things and chase after the wind, that you would give us a perspective on eternity to allow us to hold on to what will last and to seek after you with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.